I want to welcome today's guest, Dan Reese, who is a, and I'll use the terminology that he prefers, a wildfire strategist and aviation advisor. So I'm going to say, Dan, say hello to everybody. And I'm going to follow that up with, could you explain what that is? Because it's a big set of terms and I really want to understand it. Sure, got it. Well, thank you for having me here today, Lance. Uh, so in my career, uh, I, I finished out mostly uh, in uh, tactical air operations for wildfire events. And uh, after I left, I started a, a consulting firm, International Wildfire Consulting Group. And that was shortly after uh, I finished running Global Super Tanker Services, which ran the, the 747 Global Super Tanker, uh, which was an air tanker, aerial firefighter um, with a 747. So uh, I, I help people who call me engage with questions regarding wildfire. Uh, oftentimes it's technology or it's chemicals or it's process. Uh, it might be, uh, you know, something uh, along the lines of NASA uh, uh, presentations for people who want to engage with NASA or uh, new equipment like, a, say, a fire nozzle. Um, people who want to understand what it takes to engage in the wildfire community is, is pretty much what I do. Well, it's interesting. I actually, before we went live here, uh, did a quick research on you with uh, LinkedIn and a few other sources. And just what you're mentioning, it, it's kind of interesting where uh, I saw an article that you were involved with uh, for water conservation and firefighting just by changing the shape of the nozzle and the stream of the uh, water flow. It cuts it like in a third. Correct. So, I mean, that, that's kind of interesting stuff. I, I'll tell you what, though, I, some really sharp images and uh, photos of uh, those big planes dropping uh, the fire retardant, you know, on the site. So it's pretty impressive. Anybody watching this, you may want to take a look and uh, find him on LinkedIn. Pretty uh, interesting stuff out there. <clears throat> but before we uh, started today, we were talking a little bit about uh, the difference between the central part of the U.S. and the East Coast and California, which is where you're from. Now, California has been dealing with wildfires forever. Right. The new phenomenon that's affected us on the East Coast, and I'm in New Jersey, is smoke from Canada, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, causing uh, this choking of the air quality, not just outside, but inside of our home. So what do you see what we're facing now compared to what you normally deal with in California? Well, it's clear and beautiful and, and a really moderate temperature here, you know, this summer with the weather patterns, uh, which is really nice. I think that El Nino probably has something to do with that. Uh, you know, as I watch the news sources and the science uh, research with the polar vortex, you know, uh, collapsing somewhat and changing the, the airflow in the cooler weather, it's really nice here in California. And we've not had the fires, you know, this year that we've had uh, in the last several years and the air has been clear. So it's been really nice, um, a little agonizing to see what's happening uh, on the East Coast and the Eastern Seaboard and in Canada, where we don't typically see that. And ironically, you know, we see a lot of fire on the West Coast and it's highly publicized, but in the Southeast of the United States, you know, there's a huge number of fires uh, there that, that occur typically annually. Uh, although I don't think in scope and size of what we see here with the integration of the population and what we call the wildland urban interface. But 
uh, the smoke conditions definitely will get people's attention. And, and, and when we start seeing entire towns, uh, you know, being raised like Paradise and Greenville and the, the towns uh, up in Oregon and, and now Canada, it, it definitely starts to get people's attention. Well, you know, I've seen a, a big change in, I don't want to say weather patterns, but just because of the way we've been for the last, let's say, three, four weeks here in the Northeast, we haven't had rain. I mean, everything is extremely dry. Now, normally for us, June, we usually run that week or two or three of, we'll run those 85, 90 plus degree temperatures, and they start calling it the heat wave and everything else. We haven't had that, which I'm not complaining about. But the point I'm trying to get to is when these fires produced this smoke that came down on the New York, New Jersey area, we actually got a glimpse of almost the start of what a nuclear winter would look like. And yes, it sounds very dramatic to say that, but we were barely getting to 70 degrees when the normal temperatures are 80, 85 for us here in New Jersey this time of the year. And we were told by the Weather Channel and all the other uh, officials that are talking about it, that there is so much smoke in the air, it's blocking the sun from its normal thermal heating during the day. I mean, I, I have solar panels on my house and I see my production was down you know, at ground level. It was horrible. So this is what you deal with out in California. We're only getting a glimpse of it now. And truthfully, we've been spoiled, out of sight, out of mind. You know, we hear about the fires in California and okay, I'm with our business. I mean, this brings it home to us. And I think it's a, an opportunity for you to explain to us what we should be expecting and you know what happens because this may not be just a short-term thing it may continue no unfortunately i would say that uh, for the people on the east coast you're in it for the long haul until such time that the weather patterns change and these fires are naturally mitigated uh, you know we can make a difference when i say we and, and the fire service can make a difference uh, when these fires are smaller, when they when they are in their incipient stages, when we get on and and we can handle aggressive initial attack, and we've got the the weather you know in our favor to be able to make that attack successful. Unfortunately, what most people don't realize is once these fires become of that magnitude and size to where they're calling them mega fires. Uh, we can black the sky out with aluminum, meaning air tankers and, and aircraft, uh, and that's all limited. And the bigger they get in scope, the more resources they demand. And we have a finite number of resources internationally and nationally, whether it's in Canada or the United States. No one agency can be fully prepared uh, for, uh, for this type of event. Right. We have uh, agreements that uh, are between local agencies. We have state agreements. We have federal agreements. We have international agreements uh, where we have standardization that takes place for everybody to engage. But, you know, when we lack the capacity to adequately um, attack these fires when we can, uh, that will cost us and 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 trying to build capacity during the event is just impossible. Uh, and once these events get up and running, they become very, very expensive. So the the catch really when they get this big is that we need the capacity to keep fires small when they first start. 
And when they get this big and they draw this many resources, we have in the fire service what we call drawdown, meaning we, we've drawn the resources so thin that now our ability to rapidly and successfully initial attack fires becomes compromised because we just don't have the resources there to do it. So for, you know, my small part of life here on earth and the fires that I've, you know, had to deal with in these quote nuclear winters. And my first experience with that really was in 1987. And the scientists actually came out in the happy camp in the Klamath area of Northern California to study what a nuclear winter would be like where we had these major fires going in August and we have what are called inversions. So uh, anybody that's um, been camping and seen a campfire burn, the smoke will rise and then it'll kind of flatten out and, and form a haze. And that's what you're seeing here only on a massive scale. And, and it does get cold. Unfortunately, those fires burn, they continue to burn under those inversions. And then when the inversion gets hot enough, we we have what we call an inversion break, where all of a sudden uh, the the air will escape up through the inversion, and the fire takes off um, madly for several hours under the inversion. But once they get to that point, it makes it very difficult for aviation resources to be successful to even get in to help the people on the ground because it's just so smoky. We can't safely operate those aircraft in those spaces. So. Unfortunately, I think right now it's going to be enduring, right? The, the, the population that's being impacted there on the East Coast and, and the central United States and Canada are at a point, unfortunately, where they're going to have to endure until Mother Nature changes her mind. What you're talking about resource-wise, is this what's caused some of the problems in Canada not being able to get a handle on these fires? Well, I think it's important to put a couple of things in perspective. Um, fires traditionally need to burn. I mean, that, that's one way that Mother Nature, uh, you know, takes care of uh, dead and dying material, beetle kill. There's a lot of, lot of reasons for fire to burn that's good. Uh, managing fire during peak burning conditions is almost virtually impossible. Uh, it only takes a few degrees of relative humidity, meaning the moisture in the air or, or a change in wind to really affect what a fire does. So when we talk about resources and capacity, it becomes part of a matter of perspective. It's kind of like insurance, right? Do we want to spend money to build capacity so that when these events happen, we can really go after them? Or mm, do we bet on the come that it's not going to happen? And unfortunately, when we listen to climatologists and scientists around the world and, and we experience what we're experiencing, where we see years and years and years of dry weather, where we see reservoirs drying up, where we see millions of trees dying, uh, that just all adds to the, you know, the fuel, no pun intended, for these fires to really take hold and go. And there's two ways fires are put out. A, Mother Nature lets them die out naturally, or B, there are firefighters on the ground that actually go dig those fires out and around to make them go away. So uh, capacity, I think in Canada right now, you're seeing probably firefighters from around the world responding. I know that uh, aviation resources and, and hundreds of firefighters from the United States are battling those blazes. And I'm sure that there are people from Australia and, and probably many other countries 
engaging to help, you know, Canada. And it's not just a regional North American problem right now. We're having this problem. We don't see it, you know, in Siberia, in Asia, in Europe, where you see fires, you know, burning in Germany, where they don't typically burn. And when that doesn't happen, people don't think that they need to get prepared because they don't think it's going to impact them. And unfortunately, you know, for those in on the eastern seaboard here in the United States that they don't really realize the impact that they are contributing to, say, tax wise. Right. That's a we we have realized and unrealized costs of fire suppression in this country in the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year, which really affects the GDP of the United States. So wildfire is a big problem, whether you're experiencing that smoke or not, we're all going to pay for it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to bring it down to an, a level where people watching this will have something in common with, <clears throat> recently we had the heavy smoke conditions. And that's what I'm going to call the smoke conditions. And they were telling people, stay inside, stay inside, avoid going outside. Now, we know from the indoor air quality side of our industry that the inside air is normally up to 10 times more polluted than the outside air. So we're already now telling people to stay in an environment that we know is more polluted than the normal outside air for them breathing. We have sensitized individuals. There's a whole class of people that suffer because of that. <clears throat> but also because of the building codes, commercial buildings, uh, public apartment complexes need to bring in fresh air on their heating and air conditioning. So now the systems that are ventilating the inside of their buildings are bringing in this air from outside, which is all smoke, VOC laden with uh, chemistries. And that's a whole nother side that nobody's prepared for because you still have to breathe. You, you can't hold your breath for five, six days. <clears throat> you know, that, that doesn't happen. And <clears throat> we use an example in um, some of our teachings about the importance of breathing. And we say some people are able to go 20, 30, 40 days without eating three, five, seven days without water, four to six minutes without air. Correct. You know, so it's not like you can avoid breathing. So you have to do things that are going to help. And that comes back to your point before about uh, preparing ahead of time. We don't spend the money on the resources. I, I've been involved with the government world for many, many years from my background. And Money was not usually spent on um, preparedness. It was always throw money at it when there was a problem. And to your point, if you don't stop these things when they're very small, they become unmanageable. Correct. Capacity is a, it's a big deal, right? Being prepared both nationally and internationally uh, is, is extremely important. Um, you know, my, my background really, uh, I put myself through school fighting fire and, and putting myself through school, I became a critical care nurse. And so I worked as a critical care nurse for several years prior to me becoming a firefighter. So it's concerning to me. I have two children, uh, uh, one 16 and one 19. And uh, we were impacted, for instance, by the campfire, which burned the town of paradise down. And in that uh, fire, uh, I think there were upwards of 20,000 structures that were burned to the ground and 80 some odd lives lost. And that fire burned into my town. Uh, that's where it stopped. 
but my children were exposed to something that I chose to expose myself to as a professional firefighter. And that's unnerving because it's not just the smoke that you burn that, that you, that one breathes in a minute. It's the side effects many years down the road that, that impact, you know, firefighters and firefighters are notoriously prone to all different kinds of cancers. And they're called assumptive uh, conditions that, you know, the government pays for when we get it. Um, and, and oftentimes our lives are cut short. So that's what goes through my mind. And personally, you know, when we were inundated with that kind of smoke, I did limit my children going out because the air, like it or not, was worse outside. I did ensure that they were wearing um, N95 um, masks, uh, similar to what, you know, people did and I'm sure have in their possession as a result of COVID. Um, anything to be able to catch that particulate, changing out the filters, you know, regularly in my home. Those were all things that uh, were, you know, top on my mind just from my medical background and being conscientious of my firefighters when I was in the station as it related to, you know, diesel exhaust fumes and the bays when we were pulling engines out or pulling engines in, right? That wasn't a place to idle because we just didn't want to be breathing that. Same for the public. You know, uh, there's there's an educational component that <clears throat> is missing in many industries. And in our industry, again, out of sight, out of mind, because you don't see the microscopic particulate and organisms and everything else that you inhale, people don't think about it. <clears throat> but when you're dealing with the fires, again, when it's in California, here on the East Coast, we don't think about it. We don't see it. It's not affecting us on a daily basis. But the submicron particles that are in these smoke plumes that are going out, they go straight into your lungs and they pass right into your blood system and all the chemistries that are associated with them. And there's and thousands. What, what's that? There's thousands, thousands oh. of these, even just from a burning pine tree. Well, and I've heard people even talk about, well, it's a campfire or it's a fire pit. We do this all the time. Well, that's true. But the factory up the street that burned with ethyl methyl nasty stuff in it that's now aerosolized in the flames, that's the stuff that's involved in what you're breathing because of the homes that burn, the factories that burn, and all the things that are inside of it, just the glues that are in the furniture you know, that you're sitting on is all poisonous to inhale. <clears throat> and again, I, to me, it's an educational piece that people don't understand about emergency medical services, about law enforcement, about firefighting, that I look at this as an opportunity to provide awareness. Something as simple as a firefighter coming out of a burning building, the last thing you would want to do is cool him down by hosing off his turnout gear while he's wearing it. Or give him a hug. Or, or give him a hug. That right. jacket yeah. could be three, four, five hundred degrees. As soon as you hose it down with water, you've created instant steam and you've scalded that individual. Well, the, the the technology has changed drastically, you know, from the time when I was a young firefighter, when I was a young firefighter, uh, Nomex was just coming out and that's the protective clothing that wildland firefighters wear. And, and my first several years of fighting fire, I did not wear Nomex. Um, and then when I was in the structure world, uh, in the municipal world, I had one set of turnouts and those turnouts were by my bed, by my bunk. You know, when the, when the bell rang, I would jump into them and go to a call and come back and peel them down, put them right next to my bunk and, and go to bed. 
um, that's just not the case anymore with what science has shown us and, and, and the medical world. Now, uh, firefighters typically have two sets of turnouts and they rotate them through structure fires and they go right to the extraction machine and they have to go out and be professionally extracted if you're following an FPA every now and then. Um, I used to go do school programs with the kids and I'd have my turnouts and let them get in it. You know, turnouts are the gear, you know, that we wear and, and let them touch and feel and see. And, and now that's even been outlawed where, you know, nothing that's been in a fire like that can go into a school. It's new turnouts that have never been exposed to smoke. Uh, a, a lot of changes environmentally in, in our profession, which you know, I think it's important for the public to understand the reasons for that. And it's important for the public to protect themselves as well, you know, such as the things we just talked about, changing filters, not going outside, you know, having your kids um, wear a mask. I mean, if if I have uh, two masks and uh, I'm going out with, you know, two kids, well, the kids are going to wear the mask, not me. I'm, I'm going to endure that uh, change. But you know, it's a matter of perspective and and doing what you can to research on your own, you know, read about the effects of smoke and, and what science is showing, read about the cost of fires and, and what's causing it. And it's a very complex, um, wildfire is very complex simply because there are those fires that need to burn and there are those fires that uh, probably should be put out. From your experience in California, your years firefighting, and from dealing with the smoke out in the California area, what what would you say to the people in the middle of part of the country and the East Coast that have experienced this? And the wind could shift tomorrow and the fires that are still burning could cause this to come down on us again. What would you recommend them doing as far as indoor and outdoor air quality and what things to be aware of odor wise and things like that? Well, wildfire smoke has, in my experience, two different kind of smells. There's there's a smell when a fire is going through a residential community, for instance, when we have many homes burning and it smells like a like a structure fire, or if anyone's thrown you know plastic uh, garbage and things into a campfire, you kind of have that acrid smell and. And that's the nasty stuff that you don't want to see burning. And you definitely don't want your children burning. Um, as, as firefighters, sometimes we can't get out of those situations um, where, where my firefighters could put on a, a self-contained breathing apparatus. We call them SCBAs. Until that smoke was clear, that, that's what they did and their turnouts were washed. So for those in the public, it really is limiting your exposure outside when, when you're listening to the environmental air pollution control advisories, um, those people that are susceptible to lung issues and problems. Uh, I, I would I would speak to your doctor. I would see what kind of HEPA filtration systems that could be put into your homes, you know, to help uh, um, filter that smoke in your homes. Uh, and, and once again, uh, my children, I, I put them into into masks, no different than when they were in COVID, when they were walking around out there, when they had to be out. Otherwise, I kept them indoors. Yeah, just to a point that you just made about wearing masks, the N95 masks, N100 masks, whatever you're able to get, they work great for particulates, but they don't do anything for the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds, which is the gases and the chemistry in the air. 
Right. That you need scuba gear like you're talking about, you know, self-contained breathing apparatus. Mm -hmm. And the public isn't going to wear that. No. So staying inside, it's really your your best bet, you know, at this point and try to avoid these situations if possible. Agreed. All right. Well, you know, I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, this is all about a public education and awareness that we're trying to push out there. There's many other segments that we will be playing following this. And uh, I really wanted to set the stage, which is I feel we've done that as to the problem that's out there. It's not going away. It wasn't the three or four days that we had here and the problem's never going to come back. It's things that we need to be aware of. Correct. And uh, I really appreciate your time and help with that. Absolutely. Thank you for having me today, Lance. Appreciate it. Be safe and uh, good luck with your new adventures out there. And uh, I look forward to seeing some more of those interesting uh, Im images and videos of all these firefighting planes and stuff you got out there on your site. Yeah, there's some amazing pilots and people. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. All right.